Good evening. We're continuing our series. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's number 21 today. I already lost count. But uh, you, you always follow the dates, then you know which one comes next. And the series of the Talmud. And I'm trying to remember where we finished last week. Uh, last week we spoke about oh, Tu Be'av, the 15 days of Av. What's the things that used to happen in that day? The day of the Shiduchim, the day that they allowed to bury the bodies, and so forth and so on. Today we continue. The Gemara says that the, we, we, we actually finished last week Masechet Ta'anit, but the last thing in Masechet Ta'anit, the Gemara says, Amar Rabbi Elazar, Atid HaKadosh Baruch Hu La'asot Machol HaTzadikim Began Eden. There will be a time that God will make a special party for the righteous people in heaven. And, this, and, and, and God himself is in the center and all the tzaddikim are around him. And every one of the tzaddikim will point with his finger and will say, remember this is a whole spiritual world, there's no bodies there, don't uh, try to imagine in our time that you put somebody important in the middle and everyone stand with their body and point. This is an analogy. Everyone points and says, Ze Hashem kivinu lo. We, sing, we have a beautiful song that we sing in the weddings. This is God that we hoped for. Kivinu lo veyoshienu. And he saved us. Nagila venismecha bishuato. Now finally it's the time that we can dance purely with his salvation, which will be the final one. Then we're starting today Masechet Megillah as we continue in the right order. Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, this is one of the Gemarot that you hear everywhere that you have lectures in ethic, in Musar, in Yeshivot, try to encourage the, the learners, the students, to learn better Torah, to put more efforts. They always use this Gemara. Let me share this with you. The Gemara says like this, Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Im yomar lecha adam yagati uvelo matzati. If a person come and say, listen, Abba, dead, rabbi, teacher, whatever it is, yeah? I promise you, I did my best and I didn't succeed. I learned, I learned, I learned, but I didn't succeed. Don't believe him. It's not true. What do you mean? If a person, remember what we're saying here, not talented, not smart, not having a great memory, not sharp, doesn't have any wisdom. You know, one of the last one online. Let's not describe him further, okay? If he puts his life into the Torah, it's just a matter of time, whether it's going to take five years, ten years, twenty years, or fifty years, but he's going to make it in his lifetime to have a complete kinyan, to have control in every chapter in the entire Torah, the Bible, the Gemara, the, Shul, the Halakha. I've seen it in my own eyes. Uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, we had a guy in yeshiva that everyone who came to the yeshiva within months, within months became better than him. And he was already at that time more than three years learning. More than three years learning. He wasn't so sharp. Everyone who came, after a few months, already become better than him, in a Gemara. 
So apparently he had to switch from one student to another because everyone who learned with him right away became better than him and wanted to progress. So he went to the Rosh Hashiva and said, listen, it's, it's too much, it's too slow for me, the learning. I want to move to the next level. So you, was, you saw him sitting and basically not really progressing for three, three and a half years. But what did this guy had? He was very, very serious in his learning, very serious. For instance, he would never be late even one minute. The rabbi say to the people who used to come late, you see you two minutes late. This is Torah we're dealing here. We're not talking about uh, driving school. This is Torah here. Two minutes, it could be fortune, it could be eternity. It's not a joke. Every letter in the Torah, it's a huge mitzvah. What do you think? It's a, it's a game to be late. So the people used to make excuses. You no, know, Rabbi, why? It's three o'clock now. It's, you know, after lunchtime. The, the, uh, people, you know, it's three o'clock, what? He said, no, it's three or two. No, in my watch, it's three. You know those arguments. So then one time the Rosh Yeshiva said, listen, listen, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care about the clock. For me, the learning begins when this guy opens his Gemara in the morning. That's officially the time. He knew that this guy is never, ever going to be late. And, and remember, he's supposedly all this time the worst in yeshiva in learning. Then after three and a half, four years, all of a sudden, in a period of days, week, two weeks, not more than that, Hashem opened up his head, and all of a sudden, all the delay that he had were all cancelled. Within short period of time, he became the best in yeshiva. He went right away, express to the highest shiur. Why? Because you have to understand, learning Torah is nothing, nothing like any other learning in life. Any learning that you have, like math, you learn one hour, you know X amount of math. You know, you learn a hundred hours, you know a hundred times more. You learn a thousand hours, doesn't matter. It's not a snowball. Every hour, it's the same amount of information you gain. If you learn the same equal efforts in math, so you learn one hour, let's say you got one pound of math, just for you to understand what I'm talking about. You learn another hour, two pounds. You learn a thousand hours, a thousand pounds. You learn a million hours, it's still a million pounds. That's how it is. But the Torah, it's not like this. The Torah, it's a snowball. Why? The more it gathers together, every minute is a little bit better than the previous minute. It's very interesting. So after years, what you do in one hour, as far as understanding and putting things together, nothing to compare in the hour five years ago. This is a spiritual kind of learning. Don't ever try to compare it to history or math or anything else that you're going to learn in your life. Because this is 100% a gift from God. And God is the only one who decides how much he wants to give to each learner. Depend on how. How, did, how does he make his decision? Why Reuven will get it easy and Shimon will have to sweat a lot? Why? One criteria that he checks is first who you used to be in your previous life. Remember, this life is a continuation of the previous one. So, 
if you were a very serious learner in your previous life, there's no reason to put you in a very low level to start from zero. Right away, within years, as a kid in yeshiva, oh, everybody understands that you're very good. Why? Because Hashem wants you to go to a few levels higher. If I push you back all the way to the beginning, what's the point? You repeat another life. You get the same thing. He wants you to get quickly to where you stopped, that from there you can go now to higher levels. Maybe you learn Kabbalah more, things that you didn't do before. If you didn't take the Torah serious in your previous life, so now you start with nothing. Also, the most important thing, and this is what I'm talking here about, is the first reasons why Hashem help you in the learning is how much effort you put in the learning. If you are very serious, if you sacrifice a lot for the Torah, if nothing around you tempts you to leave the Torah and go make money or go, you know, I don't know. You know, like everyone has things that attracts him. Sports, this, family members. There's always obstacle when you learn Torah. You have to go here, you have to go there, you don't have money, you have to pay some bills. So you close the Gemara, you go to work, you forget about the Torah. No, everyone with his own obstacles. When a person gives his life for the Torah, then Hashem opens his head, mamash like a gift. He used to be a rabbi, his name was the Sdeh Chemed. That was his title, Sdeh Chemed, beautiful field. Well, it's based on a book that he wrote. That was the name of it. And he was an average person in the yeshiva. All his childhood and teenage days, he was average. Not the worst, not the best. Somewhere in the middle. But definitely nobody ever dreamed that he's going to be one of the most legendary rabbis in history. That in every serious yeshiva you have his books today. All over the world. Nobody ever knew that. What made him what he is? He answered the question. He had an enemy, one guy that wasn't a good guy, and was very jealous with him for whatever reason. He's not saying why, but that guy was very jealous with him. Jealous people are a very dangerous threat. That's why you always have to be careful who to be with and who to avoid. Not mitzvah to be around people that you know they're jealous with you and they put their evil eye on you and they make all kinds of problems behind the scene for you. You gotta be careful. Also, when you come to help someone, and we do chesed, you have to know who to help, who not to help. There are people, remember what I tell you, you don't hear it anywhere. There are people that it's a sin to help them. There are people that if you help them, it's a sin. It's not a mitzvah. And I don't have time to start clarifying for you which one yes, which one no, because the lecture will take a year. You know? But use your head. Amevin yavin. Who is a mitzvah to help? or who is forbidden to help. One thing I tell you overall, great, ungrateful people, that not only they don't appreciate, they get angry that they receive help from you. It's the ego. You give them, let's say, a suit that you wore. Still worth a lot, still nice suit. Let's say you gain some weight. It's not, it's not ripped. It's a decent suit. You give it to them, instead of kiss your hand and say thank you, they get angry. You understand? These kind of people, or people that see that you got promoted and it drives them crazy. You know, or they see that you got a new car and their eyes on a car, the next day the car is totaled. People that instigate, people who 
making scenes with the help that you're going to give them. They're going to violate Shabbat, they're going to buy non-kosher food, then you're not allowed to help these kind of people. People who speak against Hashem, people who criticize the Torah, ignorant people that don't want to help themselves. There's no mitzvah to help them. You understand? So there's a list. I don't, you know, I mean, don't, don't already jump to conclusion because everything I mentioned, we have to learn deeply in what scenario you're allowed to help them and what scenario you're not allowed to help them. You understand? But there are, there are, there are certain things in life. i give you one example. Let's say there's a person in a one, one, one synagogue that when they finish the prayer in the morning, they want to say the last Kaddish before Alenu Shabbat. The Ashkenazim say it after Alenu Shabbat. The Sfaradim say it before. Before the Kaddish, we say Tana Deve Eliyahu Zachur Latov Kol Ashone Alachot Bechol Yom. There's a part from Tana Deve Eliyahu. It's a holy book from Meuchas Leliyahu Navi. It says that every person will learn laws in Shulchan Aruch every day, guaranteed to ever share to the world to come. That's like a bonus. This is a special sgula uh, to be able to go to Olam Abba, to heaven, easier than before, if you do it every day. No. So there's one guy, you know, it's all mostly business people. He gets angry that, you know, there's a custom in many synagogues that one person, either the rabbi or one of the people who prays there, that he opens up the Shulchan Aruch and reads two halachot. Or say a, a one-minute word, you know, like Dvar Torah, you know, something like this. So he keeps going like this, like this. And everybody feel awkward, you know, like this guy doesn't want to even hear one minute of Torah. So now they are asking if they're allowed to answer Amen on his Kaddish. Because believe it or not, who is the person who says the Kaddish after that Torah learning? That guy. His father died. He's in the ear of his father. The most productive Kaddish to the deceased people is the Kaddish that you say after learning Torah. It's called Kaddish. It's the most productive. Al Israel, Val Rabbanan. That's the most important Kaddish for the souls. That's why they, put it, they pushed it into the prayers. And when they finish Nishivot, they finish. So one guy says Kaddish, or in the, middle, in the end of lectures, they say Rabbi Hanina ben Akashia Omer, and then everybody say Kaddish, all the Yetomim, the orphans. So who needs it the most? This ungrateful person. And he's the one who is not interested in this Dvar Torah. So they ask if when he say Kaddish, they're allowed to answer Amen on him. Or not to let him say Kaddish, to go like this to him. We're not interested to hear you praising God. You don't, we're not interested. Get out of here. Goodbye. What do you think the, the answer is? The answer is he has to receive one warning before they, they fill up his mouth with feathers, that he won't be able to make a beep. He gave him a warning. A person that is against the Torah is not welcome here. Either you be quiet or don't step in this shul ever again. But definitely, we're not going to answer amen. It's brachot levatala. You say brachot, not, not one person in the shul would answer. Why? You are not welcome here. Why? The shul was made for people who love God. They come to praise him, they come to talk to him, they come to request, they come to cry for the problems. That's what it means, synagogue, shul. A person that cannot hear the words of the Torah of Hashem, which is the most important thing in life, what's the point of coming to shul? 
Didn't he read that the Torah say, Amesir Ozno Mishmoa Torah Gam Tfilato Toeva? Someone who removes his ear from listening to Torah, his prayers is also despicable. Hashem is not interested in his prayers. You hate my Torah, you come to talk to me? What am I interested in you? You understand the idea here? So there are people that definitely they don't deserve your help. If you have some energy and you want to help, make sure you know who to help. In everything in life, we have halachot. Who to help, who not to help. Sometimes two people deserve help, but one comes first. Your relative, people from your own community, someone who learns Torah is the first one on the list. Someone who saves other people, make them religious, is on the top of the pyramid. Nothing is more important than this. So you finally have some energy to volunteer, definitely have to know who comes first. If you don't have an opportunity, so you go to the second best. You don't have an opportunity, you go to the third best, fourth best, fifth best, but there's an order. You don't jump to the end, buy donuts for Hanukkah party, when it's not important at all. And you lose your 10% maaser to give to nonsense. Or to open another synagogue on top of the 5,000 synagogues that we have, and half of them are empty. We need another $6 million. Help, help. Now, some of these synagogues begin to close. I hear, around. <laughs> because one guy with his ego wanted to open himself a shul, and he obviously couldn't get enough people to come. Nobody pays the expenses of the building. To build a building, people like to give. Why? They put their names. <laughs> Understand? So that's an honor. Ooh, everyone can see my name. But then later, some of them will be very disappointed because, yeah, their name will be on the building, but nobody will ever come to read that name. You know, even when you want your name to be put somewhere, you might as well know where to put your name. And just that you know that the Zohar say that if they put your name on something that you donate, right away most of your reward is gone. Why? Because people will pay you respect. Their, your shiduch of the children will be easier. In business, people will ask less questions about you. Why? Because everybody knows you are the great philanthropist. Your name is on a building. Ah, a guy that gave a million dollars to our community, to the shul. How much question I should ask about him in business? Of course I'll give him my money to invest by him. He's a good guy. Usually it's the other way around. The biggest thief in the history of Monsi is the number one person in hospitality. He brings more guests than any other family in the history of Monsi. But what can I do that all his money is stolen? from miserable people he steal, and then he brings miserable people to feed them in their home, like Robin Hood. But Robin Hood was stealing from the rich. He's still from the poor. People who work for him for four or five years, they save ten, twenty thousand dollars say, yeah, you can keep it by me. Why? They can open a bank account, they don't have social security, I don't know, all kinds of reasons. And in the end, of course, they never, they never get their money. You understand what's happening? Don't ever think that a person that is good in tzedakah is honest. Don't ever think if he's generous and he gives tzedakah, he's a decent person. He can be a big drug dealer, he can be a big uh, fraud guy that's stealing from the government and from the bank and what comes easy goes easy. It can be different reasons. So don't be ever impressed by what you see from the outside. It's very, very complicated today. And people, believe me, many people fall into this trap because of these things. And sometimes the only reason they give is to hunt new people. The same thing when they grow that nice, beautiful, gray beard, 
and they buy the best Rosh Yeshiva hat, and they walk with all these things. And of course, you know, I don't have to tell you. But today we have to be very, very careful, and that's it. So we go back to what we, st we started. So the efforts, when, we, when a person learns Torah, the efforts is the most important thing. If Hashem sees that you really do, the, the Torah always comes first. I'll give you an example. There's one guy, he gives a shiur for years, every night between 8 and 9 o'clock. Thank you. Between 8 and 9 o'clock, he gives a shiur. I'm sorry, between 7 and 8 in Israel. Between 7 and 8, he'll teach a group of people that comes from work, and they learn for one hour by him, every night. That's their night learning. One time, he told them, guys... My daughter gets married tomorrow. You know I'm not coming tomorrow. But, uh, you know, I want you all to learn between you. You know, you go over what we learn. And at 9 o'clock, when, when, when you finish a shiur, the, the, it's in Bnei Brak. The catering place is five minutes walk. So you come there, you know, you, you come. Hopefully you'll make it to the chupa. Of course, yeah, we have to learn. All of a sudden, they see 7 o'clock, he showed up to the shiur. His daughter get married. Few blocks away. The night of his daughter, he said, my heart didn't let me not come teach the shiur. Let's do it quick until 8 o'clock. Anyway, you know, until the rabbi come, until they check everything, for sure he won't start before 8. He gave the shiur as usual, and he came to the place, and everything was not even starting yet. Only by 9 o'clock the chupa start. If you know what I mean. It's very common. You know? Only by the Ayekes Ashkenazim, they say 7 o'clock, and they expect it to be at 7 o'clock. By the Sfaradim, they know if they say 7 o'clock, they mean 9. <laughs> they already take an hour in advance, because they know if they tell you 8, you come at 10. So they say 7, that you show up by 9, unfortunately. You know, I heard a nice joke. What happened when a Hasid and a Litvish get married? They are late. Exactly by, the, uh, by one hour. Because <laughs> the Litvish are very precise. And I see them, you know, it's 8 o'clock, it's 9 o'clock. So they come exactly 60 minutes late. What happened? <laughs> what happened when the Litvish and the Chabadnik gets married? The Mashiach come exactly on time. That's <laughs> good jokes. That's only jokes, relax. So anyway, <laughs> so now, it says like this. Yagata v'matzata, if a person says yagati, I, yagati comes from the word yegi'ah, efforts. And I, I, and I didn't find, here, I put my life in the Torah, and nothing came out of me. Don't believe him. Check him well. In the middle of learning cell phone, every 30 minutes cup of coffee, every 15 minutes, five minutes break cigarettes, you know, text messages, you know, you know, today doesn't feel good, tomorrow he has a doctor's appointment, the next day he has to take his kids, the bus didn't show up. Tomorrow he has to renew his license. The next day somebody is, is end coming. He didn't see her for five months already. The Gaon Mivilna, he did not see his sister for 50 years. Five zero. 
50 years, 50 years since they were kids. One day he heard, you know, remember there's no telephone 250 years ago. No trains, no planes, no cars, no internet, nothing. No UPS, no FedEx, no camera on your laptop. You know, that you can see your sister even though she's in Honolulu or Zimbabwe. You don't have it. So the Gaon Mivina heard that his sister at the door. Surprise! Ah, surprise, no? What did he do? After 50 years. He got up, he came out. Oh, my sister, Baruch Hashem, you're alive. How is your life? Everything good? How is your husband? How's the kids? This, everything okay? A minute and a half. He talked to her. Forgive me. I have a mission in life. I have to go back right away to my Torah. We will meet again in heaven. Ah, goodbye, shalom, finished. Today, the person who learns Torah, every other day is not showing up. What happened? You didn't come yesterday. My friend had a birthday party. Oy la leaving Hashem's Torah for birthday, foolish birthday party. Everyone became paro, birthday. The only one who celebrated birthday in the Torah was Paro. Why are we learning from Paro? Huh? No, no Jew ever celebrated in the Torah a birthday. Only Paro. And all of a sudden, all the Jews became Egyptians. So every other day, birthday party. The next day, there is the final World Cup, Rabbi. Believe me, Rabbi, you know how many games I didn't watch? But the last two games I must watch. It's the semi-final and the final. So today and the next day I don't come, Rabbi, but don't worry, I'll come. Next time, I'll, every day, 10 more minutes, I'll bring it back, what I lose. So <laughs> you heard about Rav Shvadron? Shvadron? Rav Shvadron was a great darshan. Rav Shvadron. When Rav Shvadron was talking in Yerushalayim, as soon as he opened up his mouth from his voice and his look, the people will be scared to death before he spoke about what, something. Just to say, you know, something, everyone was frozen. It was a massive darshan speaker. So one time, one of his students didn't come to the shiur. So he told him, whoa, finally, somebody like you became Baal Shuva, became tzaddik. You used to come every day. What happened? You didn't show up for a few days. So he gave him that stupid excuse. Rabbi, please forgive me, but you know, I just couldn't miss the game. There's a final game in soccer. So the rabbi told him, what is this? What is this football? So he said to him, you know, you have a ball. It's made from leather. And you run after the ball, and you kick it, and it goes into the net, into the goal. So he told him, <laughs> What's so important? What's so special about it? I can also kick the ball into the net. What's to do, he says. You're completely ignorant in the game. He never saw what it is. So he told him, no, Rabbi, the whole point, you have defense. You have massive, you know, strong uh, guys that they don't let you. They fight against you. It's one obstacle after the other. And the idea is to go around them, between them, you know, it's, they push, you have to be strong until you make it and you kick it into the ball. So also the whole idea that it's hard, huh? So, so if you overcome the obstacles, then you reach your goal, no? So the guy say, yes, say, oh, you should have learned, your ear should listen to your mouth what you just told me. 
you should have learned that to become a Talmud of the Torah, to become a student of the Torah, there's a lot of obstacles. Among them is that foolish game of yours. The idea is to overcome the obstacle, not to fall into the trap. What do you think? If there was no games, no NBA, no soccer, no tennis final, no wedding of your cousin, no birthday of your neighbor, no this, no that, you have to shop for your wife, you have to shop for your grandma, there's always a reason. Always a reason. Whenever you're going to learn Torah, when Hashem said that you must learn Torah morning and evening, what? He didn't know that there's going to be tons of weddings in your family. Every religious family have a hundred relatives, right? Every week there's a wedding. Wedding, bar mitzvah, brit milah, another this, 50 years anniversary. What? The opening of a new shul, achnasat sefer Torah, engagement, first lechaim. Two weeks later, engagement. Then, wedding. Three nights gone from his life because he has some friend from 20 years ago in yeshiva that invited him to his wedding. So when are we going to learn Torah? The Torah comes before all these things. <laughs> For a female like you, with your knowledge and understanding, maybe I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, first of all, I always say to myself, we find in the Gemara there were many females that were smarter than the Tanaim. The wife of Rabbi Mir Baal Anesh used to put filin and come to argue with the Chachamim. She was always right. Alacha kmo Bruria. If you ever hear women in Israel, their name is Bruria, they name after her. The wife of Rabbi Mir, Bruria. She knows Torah. The Chachamim were scared from her. If she show up, Rabbi, I heard your ruling on that uh, subject. Let me tell you what I think. <laughs> it starts like this. Bruria, how did he get to it? She learned Torah. No, the truth is that women are not obligated to learn Torah like a man. Gemara, Talmud, but they have to know halachot. And you need many years of learning to know halachot. But is it better for me to do a chesed or to learn Torah? To learn Torah is better. Yes, sure, sure. To learn Torah, first of all, is chesed for Am Israel. To learn Torah, it's chesed for Am Israel. Every Jew sits and learns Torah, helps to save souls of Jews, help to save the world, help, help to save Israel, help to, to make less sicknesses, help the army to win, help to protect against all the enemies, which is 90% of the world who wants to destroy us forever and ever. The Torah saves us. As the Torah says, If not my Torah that people learn around the clock, I would not maintain the law of universe. Heaven and earth cannot, uh, the, the world cannot uh, survive one minute. So obviously, so now you may say, okay, women are not obligated to learn Torah. They're not obligated to learn Gemara. That's really what they're not obligated. Because Gemara, it's investigations. That's called Torah Shebe'al but they definitely have to learn Chumash. Yes, sure. And they definitely have to learn the law of Lashonara. They definitely have to learn the law of modesty. They definitely have to learn the law of Nida. They definitely have to learn all the laws of Kashrut, all the worms, the flies in the food, how to clean, how to make it kosher. They have to learn laws of husband and wife, all the laws of raising children, right? Musar, the, all the laws of Shabbat, all the laws of Brachot, here is 50 years of learning 
to get just to that for women, 50 years of learning. I just named to you 50 years of learning. So who is to say that women don't have to learn Torah? Who? If a person doesn't learn Torah, he becomes automatically a Rasha. He doesn't want to be a Rasha. He loves Hashem, but he cannot be Tzaddik. There is no way ever to become a Tzaddik without being educated. There's no way. Because you want to do the right thing, and in the end, you do bad. Okay, no, so they're all listening to my lectures. You know, when I walk here on the streets, they all, when they see me shopping for Shabbat, every other woman, I watch you on the internet, I watch your lecture, I watch, so now they're going to hear it, no? That they, dear Bukharian women, you have to learn Torah. Especially when your husband is in 47th Street all day, he needs somebody to teach him when he comes home, so it's your job. Good? You okay now? Very good. Now, <laughs> I wish it would be only the problem of the Bukharian women. It's a problem of every woman, every Jewish woman all over the world. Now, we have to understand, some women have more time than others. A woman that has one and a half kids, she has time. A woman that has 17 kids, a little bit harder, you know. Cannot, Hashem cannot judge them equally. With one and a half, usually I tell you, the women that have 17 kids, they manage. The women that have one or two kids, they don't stop complaining. Talk to my husband, I need help, I can't take this anymore, it drives me crazy. But the women with the 17 kids, it's an army. She's in charge of an army. I have, I, when I call the guy that is in charge of my yeshiva in Yerushalayim, Rabbi Chizki's name, there is never a way to talk to him one sentence and to understand what he answered. Impossible. You know why? He lives in Yerushalayim in such a small apartment, and he has ten kids. And all the kids are in one little tiny room the size of the bathroom outside here. That's the way the apartments are, very small. So he's sitting, and around him there are ten, ten kids, boys and girls, and, and baby, and it's, a, it's the Philharmonic Orchestra. Just much, much louder than what they have in a concert. He, he says something 20 times. What? What? Can't hear him. Why? The noise in the house. Now imagine his wife lives like this around the clock. Around the clock. And she managed. If she has one and a half kids, she has time to complain. Why, this is not the way I want. No, this is not the way I want. He doesn't buy me a new table. This table is breaking. Everything I ask, he doesn't care. My car is three days in a... He didn't make inspection. Three days, I don't have a car. Can you believe such a thing? <laughs> she doesn't drive anywhere anyway. She's two blocks away to buy grocery. No big deal. She can order from the store. But when the life is too easy, then we want more and more and more. You know, many people who go to Israel, they have a very hard time. Why? They think that they can bring the comfortability of America with them to Israel. And that's when they get the shock of their life. Because even moving from here to Europe, in a materialistic way, it's a horrible tragedy. And you move to France, to Belgium, to England, everything smaller, smaller car, narrow street, Tons of bicycles everywhere, train in the middle of the street with electric. Completely different than here. Compared to the life here, it's hard to believe, you know. 
It's, it's amazing, amazing, different kind of lifestyle. But over there, it's much better when you move to the poor neighborhood of Yerushalayim, and the houses are from 200 years ago, right, in the Bukharian neighborhood and in other neighborhoods. Everything is old and small, and now they move from the beautiful uh, uh, private house from Brooklyn or from Muncie, and now they're all the seven, eight, nine kids have to manage the one and a half room, and the kids have to sleep in the living room, they have to open the beds. Ah, forget it, there's no minivan, there's no Costco, no Walmart. One woman told my wife, everything I already managed, but there's only one thing I, I can't stop thinking about, huh? To bring the mall with me here. <laughs> she had the mall that she used to go every other day. The mall she doesn't have, that mall with Costco and Walmart. <laughs> that was her life. All right, let's, let's go back. So, the Gemara says, Don't believe. If a person says, I learned, I put my life, and I did not become a Talmud Chacham, cannot be. Now it's the other way. A person come and say, here, look at me. Ask me any question you want, I know. Ask me Gemara, ask me, ask me Chumash, ask me Rashi, ask me, ask me. And I... I don't even learn two hours a day. What? I've been in yeshiva for a little bit. And look, I'm a genius. Everything I hear, I remember, I know. There are people that are very smart. I'm not saying no. But to be a real Talmud Chacham without efforts, nothing like this ever happened in a history. It cannot be. Except that baby that 50 years ago was born, 50, 60 years ago, he was born, and he remembered the whole Torah from his previous life. The angel didn't make him forget. So the rabbi Migur, the rabbi from Gur, after 45 minutes, took him in a room. They made some Kabbalistic ceremony, and they made the baby forget all his Torah. At three years old, he knew all the Gemara by heart. He tells you the Bach, the Tash, Shulchan Aruch, Rambam, Rosh, Gemara this, Gemara there, Rashi, Tosfot, everything by heart. He works with his lollipop. <laughs> so Amar Rashi, Tosfot doesn't agree. And this Masechedi is three years old. Three years old. So besides that guy, you know, everybody else has to work very hard to know the Torah. You know how much you have to learn? Try to drink the whole ocean in a world. 72% of the world is water. How many years is going to take you? The Torah is larger than the ocean. Right? The only difference is that when a person wants in this life everything for himself, so this materialistic lifestyle, what is it like? A person who drinks water non-stop. But what water? From the ocean, salty water. The more he drinks, the thirstier he gets. That's a good analogy. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Why? Same thing uh, Coca-Cola and all these sodas. You drink, 10 minutes later, you're more thirsty than before. That's the way design. It's designed like this, that you're going to want more and more and more, of course. Same thing in a casino. A person comes to the casino without sleeping last night. On the way to the casino, five accidents almost he made. His friend, Moshe, hey, Moshe, hey, I'm young, I don't want to die. I'm tired, I didn't sleep all night. As soon as he comes to the casino, he becomes a tiger. Why? They make special oxygen there, some kind of drug that wake up the people. Some people sit there a week without sleeping, especially if they lose. <laughs> then it's hard to sleep even without this oxygen. <laughs> All right, let's move on. So, 
So if you think that a person come and say, I know everything without learning, don't believe him. Then if a person come and say, Yagati umatsati, I put my life for the Torah. Every inch of my effort went to the Torah, and finally I got it, believe him, he's not lying. Because that's the only way. And the Gemara say, Hani mili bedivre Torah. Everything we said, only about Torah, not different kind of learning. Different kinds of learning is based on how many hours you learn. Doesn't matter it was hot or cold. When you learn math with air condition or without air condition, you get the same reward. One day you be a teacher and they pay you $500 a month. That's going to be your reward for the X amount of hours you learn math. Nobody pays you more if you learn without air condition in college. Or if they gave you a nice place with air condition, you still make the same salary. But by the Torah, every pain you had, your back hurts, humidity, air condition, no coffee to wake up, the, your gemara was falling apart, uh, the yeshiva had to walk up the hill, so many different obstacles, for every little thing you get a separate reward. Lefum tsaara agra, according to the efforts, that's how the reward is. But in business, aval bemasa matan, negotiation, business, it's all siata dishmaya. It's whatever Hashem wants. You can kill yourself 70 years from morning to night. Farmer, working, killing himself. Barely pay the bills. Sit with your cigar in Manhattan. Somebody show you a nice blue diamond. You make five phone calls. Two million dollar commission in five minutes. That's what happened over there. What do you think? Or a lawyer, $600 an hour. For what? For not reading the contracts. Yeah? Bring a hundred lawyers, connect them to lie detector. Maybe one of them read what he's supposed to read. They don't read. If you ever think that you go to a business meeting, your lawyer read what he was supposed to read, I promise you he didn't. You have to take the papers and read it. Because you have to, you have to mark all the things that it looks fishy or suspicious or, God forbid, against you, and bring it to his attention and force him to read it with you. That's the only way to be protected. Why? They just don't read. Not divorce lawyers, not business lawyers, not real estate lawyers. I, many years ago, I went with a guy to buy a place here in Farakaway. The price was nothing. I keep saying to the guy, it's too good to believe. Doesn't make sense. The, the, the place worth 300,000, they want 140,000. So he keeps giving me this answer. No, it's a woman 90 years old. Mrs. Orenstein, you see her, she doesn't even hear. You have to scream to her ear. So I said to him, you sure? He said, yes, she's, she doesn't care about money so much. She just want to sell it, and, and she's still living in the old days. She doesn't understand that now real estate is on the way up. We go, we talk to her. Yeah, you have to scream to her ear. In the end, she was smarter than everyone together. She was the only one who tried to trick everybody. In a closing, in a closing, after giving them, I don't know, ten, fourteen thousand dollars down, I don't remember the, the the rules. The rest, you know, you have to, you know, got a mortgage. Everything is ready. The title company is over there. In the closing, I said to the lawyer, "Give me the papers one minute. Give me five minutes." 
and this was a religious lawyer, religious lawyer, he claimed that at one point in his life he was a Rosh Yeshiva. Until he went to learn and he became a real estate business lawyer. No. So I read the papers, then I see something that looks very bad. I see in the bottom, in small letters, there's a star, there's a comment, subject to rent control. What's the point? This place, it's a rooming house. It's a house that they, div they div divide it to many rooms, and every tenant has his own room. They have a shower in a hallway, you know, it's like a little tiny motel. I come to the lawyer, I say, tell me, what's this? Now, here is the point. The fact that he didn't read the contract, that's a very big crime. He has to go to jail for that. But a bigger crime is that when you catch him that he didn't do the job, he continue to lie to bury you with his own end. It's one thing that you're lazy and you didn't do what you're supposed to do. It doesn't mean you try to hurt someone intentionally. You just don't do your job. That's, not an, that's an indirect damage. When, when someone brings it to your attention, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or engineer, and you know you're going to bury that person which pays you money for your service, not to admit that's a matter of ego, prestige. He doesn't want to make himself look like a fool. Ah, that's nothing. But my intuition inside, something is telling me something is fishy here. I look at this black guy from the title company. I, I'm thinking to myself, how do I find out what it is? I'm not an expert in this. I say, can I talk to you one minute outside? <laughs> the title guy is <laughs> not my representative. He comes from the title company. I'm just showing you what a world of lies here, what's going on here. So he, everyone is looking. Say, so, okay, comes out. I took out $50 bill. I say, here, that's for you. All I need from you is just translate to me this line. He said, that means that if you buy this house, your life is finished. I said, why? He said, because all the people who live here for more than 10 years, you can, ne you can never raise the rent. Yeah, the rent has to be almost zero because it's from many years ago. And now these women are charging them fair market value. All it needs that one of them will file a complaint and they go back to the beginning where this building was funded. Many years, 30, 40 years, and you have to pay one and a half times penalty to every tenant to ever live here. And I say to him, wait a minute, but I wasn't the owner then. Maybe you mean from now on. He said, no, from the beginning, it becomes your responsibility. What a stupid law, which means it's liability of millions of dollars. Now you understand why it's half a price? And he doesn't read and doesn't care. And even when you show him, I have a friend, he told me that he went through a divorce. He lost millions of dollars because of his lawyer. The lawyer caused him a direct damage. That's what's going on here. You know, in my last lecture over there when we spoke about, uh, in, uh, uh, you know, you should know, every, every Monday I'm in uh, 73rd Avenue, corner of 172nd Street. So in the, two weeks ago when we spoke over there, I brought a story of two, of, two, uh, of two doctors. One was a beginner, and one was a, an old doctor already that worked for more than 25 years in a, in a hospital. And the, 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 the doctor went home, the, the doctor with experience, and the new doctor saw that one of the patients began to choke. and didn't know what to do. 
So he called up the doctor. He said, listen, this patient is, is starting to cough and he's sweating. He's choking. What am I doing with him? He said, oh, just give him this medicine. So he told him, you sure? I'm talking about that one. He said, yeah, yeah, don't bother me at home. And he hung up the phone. He gave him the medicine and he died. True story that happened in Israel. Then he called him up again. He picked up the phone. What again? He said, don't ask what happened. I gave him what you said and he died. Who? That one. Yeah, the one I told you. No, not this one. I thought you were talking about this one. Yeah, you didn't give me 10 seconds to explain. I was trying to explain to you which patients. But you're so busy with your ego, you don't even want to listen. Life and death is nothing for you. He ran quickly to the hospital, and the patient died. And you know how many times it happens? You have no idea. Not to talk about abortions, all these doctors who make abortion, they already have genocide in their file. For all the babies they murder, and their children and grandchildren that were supposed to be born. Now, if they, if they kill in an abortion a baby, they don't know who is this baby. He was three months old, four months old. Maybe this baby was supposed to be Rabbi Ovadia Yosef. For that, he's going to get punished. For that. It's not uh, just another body you killed. It's the potential of the person. Who knows who was supposed to be? Maybe he was a person that will make 50,000 Jews religious. It did, did not come to the world from your murder, taking your knife and butchering the baby. Why? Because his mother cannot afford an extra $500 a month expenses. If she only read the Torah, she knew that the babies come with their own living. It doesn't come from her. Hashem attached their parnasat to their parents. Ignorance. Oh, it's always one thing, ignorance. So the Gemara continues, but in business, it's all siata dishmaya. You can kill yourself, make nothing. You can do nothing and make plenty. That's how it is. Also what we spoke about in words of Torah, it says that you have to know that it's also, also, when a person wants to remember what he learns and everything, he also needs siyata dishmaya. For that you have to pray. It's not enough just to put your life in learning. You have to pray every day to Hashem to open your head, to improve your memory, to give you more. Si'ata Dishmaya means assistant from God. Si'ata, Siyua, Dishmaya, from heaven. Assistant from heaven. Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak says, Im ra'ita rasha shasha mesacheket lo. If you saw a wicked person, that is very successful right now. Two or three years in business, everything he touched becomes gold. Don't start a fight with him. Don't start, stay away from him. Why? That's his time now. Every wicked person has a period of time that Hashem pays him for the few good deeds that he did in his life. Now it's the time of payment. Nothing can disturb the plan of Hashem. Don't push you in between. You're not going to be able to overcome this wicked person, even if you're righteous. Shneemar, David Amelech, Tehilim 37, Psalm 37, Al Titchar Bemereim. Don't make a competition with the wicked people. Don't feel because I'm righteous and he's wicked, of course I'll win in court. Depends. In a court of Sodom and Gomorrah, for sure you lose. If, you, if you're tzaddik, for sure you lose. But even today, in a court over here, what do you think? In a court here, no, it's already very bad. 
ולא עוד שדרכיו מצליחים, his ways are successful, שנאמר יכילו דרכיו בכל עת, everything he does is successful, another store, another restaurant, another new Mercedes, another vacation house, private jet, next thing he buy a mall, next thing he buy a big company, hop, all of a sudden he owns a television company, next thing is the president of the United States. One thing leads to another, no? שנאמר מרום משפטיך מנגדו, ולא אלא שרואה בשונאיו, שנאמר כל צורריו יפיך בדם ליין, to make a long story short, every person gets in the end what he deserves. But sometimes in the middle of the process, don't, don't expect every second of the process to be justice. What counts is in the end, in a boxing match, You have the good, the honest boxer and the tricky one, the one who bites and do bad things. So those two are fighting. It seems that the wicked one that doing illegal things is winning. Who cares? What are we care? How many rounds they have in boxing? Until the end. Huh? 12, 15? Bottom line, and the 12th round or 15th round, when the ring, when the ring goes on, We now care if justice was done or not. In between, it's nothing. The Chilonim, the secular Jews, have few beautiful sentences that they made over the years. One of them, it's worth learning. Just like we learned the Rambam. Every word of the Rambam is holy and good and true. Everything from the Torah, it's true and holy and positive. Once in a while, they also have something that they say that it's better to remember. What do they say? Tzohek, mi she tzohek acharon. Who understands Zibuir? Tzohek, mi she tzohek acharon. Yeah. We don't care who laughs in the middle of the battle. Who laughs in the end? You can be laughing an hour and a half. And the last minute your opponent is laughing and you're crying for 20 years. Huh? No? Isn't it the way? I give you an example. One boxer uh, is hitting the other one. A, he's hitting B, non-stop 12 rounds. B is like this already. In the last five seconds, out of nowhere, B moved his hand accidentally. Gave him one in his eye, his eye slashed open, the guy fell on the floor, and he sent him expre express to the third section in hell. Oh, automatically. Finished. What happened to him? What happened? 12 rounds, everyone was happy, singing, up, one punch, send him to Gainom. So in the end, who's laughing? Who got the 30 million dollars? The one who was laughing for 12 rounds? Or the one who in the last second did something and got it all? In this world, all these wicked people are smiling and laughing and they control the media. When, they, when we go over there, <laughs> They'll be the most miserable people on earth. The more wicked they are, the more money they have, the more we have to feel a pity for them. If a person is wicked and is poor and his life is miserable, at least you know God didn't give up on him. He's still punching him. Wake up, my son. Once he becomes successful, that's like bury him completely. So far, he was only digging his grave. Now he's pushing the head in. You got it? Because you know the more wealthy he becomes, 
the more luxury his life become, the chances that he will come one day closer to Hashem is lower and lower. Let's call Osher Shamur Lebaalav Lerato. So, we're still in Masechet Megillah. The Gemara says, Ama Rabbi Yitzchak, still with Rabbi Yitzchak. What is it that the verse in Tehillim, Psalms 140, Psalms 140, Al titen Hashem ma'avayei rasha, zmamo al tafek, yerumo sela. Mr. Sela walked in, we got Sela here in the Gemara. So, what does it mean, this verse? It sounds like Chinese a little bit. Yaakov is begging Hashem not to let his brother Esav be successful. Hashem, please do not let this, the plan of the wicked person, it's talking about Esav, be successful. Don't let it succeed. Zmamo, Zmamo comes from the word Mezima. Mezima means a bad plan. Al Tafek. Tafek means to produce. Lafik. Produce a record, produce a book, produce a film, right? So that's called Al Tafek. Don't let it come out and be successful. Amar Yaakov Lifna Kalosh Barhu, don't let Esav fulfill his desires. This is Germany. Germany of Edom. This is 2,000 years ago before Germany was even in a plan. No Germany in the world. It's in Masechet Megillah. Don't forget that. The Gemara said, this is Germany. Yaakov said, this is Germany of Edom. If they come out to the world, they'll destroy the whole world. Rami Chama Barchanina says, how many tribes in this Germany? How many tribes? Shlosh meot Tiri Taga Ika Begermania Sheledom. Three hundred tribes are in this Germany of Edom. Go to the cyclopedia, put Germany. This is what it says. Two hundred and something years ago. I don't know exactly, I don't remember exactly the dates. But definitely we're not talking more than two hundred years here. There was a person named Bismarck. He made the German Republic. He named that country a Republica Germanit, the German Republic. He gathered 300 barbarian tribes and united them into one republic, which only years later became Germany. They knocked down the republic, became Germany, West Germany, East Germany, they separated, they reunited, they knocked down Berlin Wall, and that's what happened. This is the history of Germany. Who are they? Hitler and his friends. Grandchildren of Esav. That came from the same womb where Yaakov, Israel, came. The same womb. And Hitler wrote in his diary, if you watch my film, Torah and Science, I show it over there with the source. The war in this life is only between us to the Jews. First he starts, yes! We are the barbarian, and I'm proud of it. I'm proud to be a barbarian. I'm releasing humankind from two, from two inventions of the Jews. 
Two things the Jews invested, invented in this life. One in the body and one in the soul. In the body, circumcision, which is a Jewish invention. He looks at as, looking at that as a defect in the body. Like you get rid of a part of the body, so you're not perfect. When the Torah said the opposite. And the second thing in the soul. They invented conscious. This is a Jewish invention, which means Musar, ethics. You should not kill, you should not steal, feel bad about you, improve yourself. All these things that the Jews are talking about in the Torah got him crazy. And I'm here to release humanity from these two things he writes over there. The war in this world is only between us, the German, to the Jews. And everything else is all one big illusion. He said what he said without really knowing that that's what the Gemara says. That's the same thing between Yaakov and Esav. Esav's coming with 400 men to destroy Yaakov. The whole thing, it started already. They already started to fight in the mother wound by Trotsetsu Anarim Bekirba. Didn't start 60 years ago when Hitler went to power. This is a part of a plan that started 3,400 years earlier. But the Gemara knew about it. That's one of the proofs that the Torah and the oral Torah is divine. Nobody could, could have known 2,000 years ago there will be a country named Germany. You know? Put it down. Give it back to him. Nobody, nobody ever could known such a thing. The only way to do it, the only way to do it is what? Is to know that you're able to see the future. And that's the only thing that is in the Torah. So the Gemara says, by the way, the same thing happened with Ishmael, the founder of all Arabs. Ishmael, the Torah says, is a wild beast, the Torah says. And the Arab reads the same Torah. And the Arabs know they came from Ishmael. They may not like to hear it, but that's what the Torah says. And they are the ones who say it's from Allah. Same Torah. It's in the Quran. The Quran says, if you have a question about the Quran, you have any doubt, go to the Torah because it's more precise than the Quran. That's what the Quran says. Watch my film, Torah and Science. It's right there with the source. So, in the Torah it says that the founder of Ishmael is Pere Adam. Everything in the world, they somehow relate to it. They control the oil, they control the money, they control the politics. They have a massive power of buying. Everybody that wants to go uh, with a new product, they're always afraid what they're going to say, to sell to Israel, not to sell. Everyone is afraid of them. How much we have to suffer in the airport? Don't get me wrong, I'm not generalizing. It's not all of them. Among them, there's many righteous people that, that keep the seven laws and believe in one God. And they're anti-terrorists, and they don't want to murder, and they are, they are themselves a victim of their brothers who terrorize the whole world. Because remember, the ones who suffer the most in the world is innocent Arabs. They suffer more than Americans and more than Jews, because everywhere they go, they get intimidated. It's impossible to see an Arab person pass through security and that being bothered by three or four investigators for an hour or two. So they are actually paying for the, I don't know, percentage, the five or ten percent of the people among them that are filthy murderers. All the other ones pay the price. But the difference between them and us, that in our society, the minority scream or the majority scream. When one side don't like the other side, the democracy, the freedom of speech, 
people are screaming against the government, against the police, against the court, against whatever they don't like. Over there nobody makes a beep. Because if you come and speak against Al-Qaeda, the next day you're dead. You come and speak against Hamas, the next day you're dead. It's very dangerous over there to speak. They don't let you, there's no freedom of, of, of speech over there. <laughs> you want to talk? For, you know, one guy wrote a, a book, Salman Rushdie, 15 years ago against the Quran. 15 years is underground. 15 years they're looking for him to, to murder him. They never forgive. They'll never forgive him. The ones in Denmark, somebody in Denmark that spoke against them, forget it. He has 10 bodyguards around him all around the clock. Very dangerous. One guy asked me, why don't you make a debate with one of their professors to Quran? We have so many mistakes in the Quran. Make a debate like you did with the priest. I said that the debate with them will finish just as, just as good as the other one. But then the next day you'll never see me again. Of course, what's going to happen? It's, it's enough lunatics over there that will take it to their heart and come to blow up your, ho your whole home. You know, I just hope they won't follow me to the yeshiva or to the synagogue. Or maybe I should hope that because that's going to save me. <laughs> sitting in yeshiva. But the idea is everybody knows. Nobody dares to debate them. In the old days, the Christian used to be like this. When the Ramban had a 25 minutes debate with the cardinals, the Christians, that night he had to leave Spain, escape from Spain, because tomorrow he'll be dead already. He already knew they're, ready to kill, they're getting ready to kill me. Why? I insulted them so much with their nonsense in their book that they cannot bear the embarrassment. So they have to kill me. He had to leave. Today, the Christians are using a different tactics. They don't come with the sword and the gun. They come with the sweet talking and lots of money behind them. All the donations go to the missionaries. They don't come to me. If I want to give three, 4,000 CDs a month for free, I have to beg people to help. There are a few good people, not rich. I don't get a penny from rich people the whole month. Not one penny. It's very strange, you know. I spoke in some very, very fancy towns here in New York. Very fancy. Every house is five million and up over there. Not one dollar comes from there the whole month. And another fancy place, not one dollar comes from there. And in California, the most fancy neighborhood in America, not a penny comes from there. And Florida, in a very, very fancy neighborhood, one of the seven most fancy neighborhoods in America, $180 come a month from there. Take the five top neighborhoods in America, I gave many lectures over there, all together $180 a month. How much they give the Israeli army? Probably millions. How much they give Hanukkah parties? Millions. How much they give stupid signs on the, on the street? that does not help anything to the Jewish nation, who knows? You understand the point or no? But to save our brothers and sisters, to make more and more Baal Tshuva, to bring the Torah to people's mouth and eyes, only very few intelligent, smart people that understand the potential. The rest, I don't know what's going on here. Very interesting. So we continue here. The same thing with Ishmael. Ishmael was also a wild beast, the Torah say. So. The nation of Israel, is, is, we're already asking Yitzchak, Ishmael is a very, very serious threat to my children. So Hashem say, I'm not punishing a person when he's not guilty yet. Of course I know in 10 years he's going to be a massive murderer. 
of course I know it's going to be another Hitler. But right now, is he guilty? Today, Rosh Hashanah, today. I'm reviewing his previous year. He deserves execution? The answer is no. He didn't do it. He has a lot of bad plans. I do not interfere with the free choice of a person. That's the whole concept of life. A test. I'm testing the Goyim, I'm testing the Jews. When do I interfere? When what he wants to do is against my plan. For instance, he wants to murder Rav Ovadia Yosef. They already have 30 different plans to come and blow his house with a missile. Every time Hashem made the security services and others, they found out their plan. It never went through Baruch Hashem. Why? Hashem doesn't want him in heaven yet. Still has a lot of things to do here. If they want to interfere with Hashem's plans, he won't let them. But if the people deserve to die, not only Hashem does not interfere with their plans, He assists them, like He did in the twins. When He wanted 3,000 people to die, He chose which people supposed to die, and He put them over there that day. Many people didn't make it over there. There was slichot. Many, many Jews were supposed to be there. Thousands. They all got delayed. People who got there were on the way to the building. The police didn't let them in. And those who were supposed, unfortunately, to die, I feel bad for every one of them, but when Hashem kills someone, He knows what He's doing it. Only He knows, we don't understand. Not always, sometimes we understand, most of the time we don't. Everyone was supposed to get killed, Hashem puts him over there, and He made two falachim, two ignorant Arabs that went to school in Florida to learn how to fly and plane, and never learned how to land. And nobody saw it. They only came to the course just to take off and fly the plane. When they were supposed to come to get tested on landing, which is the hardest things in flying planes, to find the track and to land smoothly, they never showed up. And it didn't, and, and I don't understand. You see Arabs, again, not all Arabs are terrorists, but you see Arabs that are from Saudi Arabia, from other countries, coming to learn how to fly big planes. That's already not a red flag, a burgundy flag. <laughs> very, very... Every fool should have seen, hey, the FBI, why don't you take a look what's going on here? Nobody saw. Next thing, they only come to the course just to take off and to fly the plane, but not to land. What, what else do you need? Make some research. Five minutes, check. Passports, where they came, what? Check their bank accounts. Go to the judge, get a subpoena, check their bank account, see how many millions they got, how many people are gathering together. Follow them one or two weeks. They, they are experts of bothering innocent people. Somebody who made $5,000 in inside information in the stock market, they choke him. But the terrorists are celebrating. Or oh, the mafia here, I don't want to tell you what's going on out here. You know, the hero on the weak people. The strong people, it's already a different story. You understand? When Hashem wants them to succeed, direct, directly into the building. Take that Muhammad and tell him, fly the plane 1,000 times again to the building, he won't make it. Quarter to nine that morning, Hashem directed him because that was the end. That's it. Hashem, Hitler wanted to destroy us. If Hashem didn't want, it wouldn't happen. We'll make Hitler get a heart attack two weeks before, and the whole plan will go. That's it. Nobody else would have the courage to put together such a massive plan. What was the problem of Hashem to choke him for two minutes and that's it, in his sleep? 
drink a little bit vodka, <coughs> cough, shock. That certificate, alcoholic, finished. Nobody would ever know. A year before he did it. The opposite. Hashem took an Austrian person, not bright, was in jail, all the negative, and he went to power in the most intelligent country in the world. Yeah? No? That's, what, that's the history. When, when Hashem sent the leaders, there's always a message with these leaders. There's a message. Why Hashem chose Moshe Rabbeinu? He made him stuttering. Why? That the people would never ever think that the power of the leader comes from his power of speech. Oh, Obama, Obama, what a great speaker. Bibi, Bibi, you know what a great speaker? Yeah, they are good speakers, they know how to talk. But when Hashem doesn't want you to succeed, you can be the greatest speaker in the world. Nothing will help, nothing will help. And if Hashem wants you to succeed, you can be mute. There used to be Rabbi Berkowitz from Luzan in Switzerland. He was also a chazan. So he said to him, Rabbi, why you always present yourself as a chazan, as a cantor, when you are a rabbi? Officially, you are a rabbi. A rabbi is a much higher title than a chazan, a cantor. A cantor can be a complete ignorant person, doesn't even know how to write. You know, he knows how to read, but he doesn't know really how to write. He's spelling, whatever. Can be a chazan. If he knows how to sing, beautiful, very good. Knows how to aim to the world, to say the right word. He understands the meaning of the word. Can be a chazan. So, what's going on here? So he says, I tell you why. When I stand in my lectures in front of my audience, they fall asleep in my face. That's the fortune of a rabbi. But when I'm a counter, I, I pray and they hold behind me. So when they fall asleep behind me, I don't get offended. I'd rather be a cantor that they sleep behind my back than they sleep in front of me. <laughs> that was his answer. So when he went to get his Swiss passport, he went in front of a comedian in Switzerland. Now you know, the Swiss people are yekes. They come exactly one hour late. No, they're never late. You make a, a, a meeting with a German or a Swiss guy, it's not going to be late. It's in their culture to be on time. So the Swiss asked him, Rabbi Berkowitz, with all due respect, you have your synagogue, you came here, and now your visa expired and you have to leave the country. Please give us one reason why we should give you a Swiss password, why we should make you a little citizen. Tell us how you're going to benefit Switzerland, not the Jewish community. What are you doing for us? No, they have a legitimate question. So he told them, let me ask you a question. We all know that one day the Messiah will come, right? They all say, yeah. <laughs> and say, we all know that you believe that it's going to be JC, no? So let's say tomorrow night JC will show up here in Switzerland, in Zurich or Luzan, and he's going to want to gather the people around him to tell them that the salvation begins, right? If he comes to you, he comes to you, and he's going to come to say to you, Hashem shalach oti, ashre yoshve betecha, odi aluch hasela. He's going to say, what, what, excuse me, what? He's going to talk to you. What language is going to talk? The language he spoke when he was alive, no? The language of the Torah. The holy language. You won't understand him. You won't understand him. Nobody will understand him. He will get very offended. 
He comes to save his children, and they're all looking at him like this, staring, and they don't know what to do. Say, move! They stand like this. Sit! They get up. Then you're going to need me. He's going to come to me and say, Rabbi Berkovitz, help me out. These people don't understand. I'm going to have to translate. You're going to need me here. They started to laugh. <laughs> Give him the... Give him the passport. Five minutes, he got a passport. Without test, without a serious true story. He wrote it in his book. That's how he got visa. Maybe today wouldn't help, but that's how it was 50, 60 years ago. 50, 60 years ago. Uh, we, time is running out. We have 10 minutes left, so let's take advantage on it. We're still in Maseret Megil. Abra Knesset Israel. Now they're speaking about He's speaking about Shaul HaMelech, King Saul. King Saul was supposed to destroy the nation of Amalek. That was the plan. And he destroyed everyone. He destroyed everyone except one. Who was the one he didn't destroy? The King Agag. There's all kinds of answers why he didn't kill him. Some say he made a kishuf, black magic, and he made himself look like an animal and he didn't recognize him. There's all kinds of things I read in the past years. Bottom line, we go by the simple understanding that he saw that he destroyed everyone and he had mercy on him and he left him. Sometimes it's a bigger punishment to leave the king after you destroyed his whole army and his whole nation. And leave him alone to see all the bodies. It's worse than to kill him. To kill him, he doesn't feel the suffering. To leave him alone and see millions of people sleeping dead here, it's a much bigger punishment. That's what Hashem did to Paro. His whole army drowned, and Paro got saved. Lo nishar mehem ad echad. The Gemara says, which one survived? Paro. But there's a different reason for it, because Paro, Hashem took away his free choice. Because Hashem already told Moshe, Paro would not listen to you. I won't let him. After what he did to you, I'm taking away his choice. So don't be impressed by his being stubborn. It's a part of the plan. Since he didn't have a free choice, he didn't deserve to die. Why the Egyptians deserve to die, by the way? Why? If Saddam Hussein wants to go and blow out the Kurdish, all Iraqi people has to be executed because they blew out the Kurdish or the Turkish that... that uh, uh, you know, destroyed the, the Armenians. So now all Turkish has to die because one or two or five leaders wanted to destroy them, so now everyone has to die. What's going on here? Why a nation has to pay for their leader's act? The answer is because the only one, the only one who can take care of the leader and take him off his power and make him fear is this nation, nobody else. The nation come, all of them one hand, today it's very easy. To, if they had Facebook in the time of Egypt, probably wouldn't have the exodus of Egypt. Right away they will communicate. They see they have enough people in the list. They say, okay, tomorrow at 2 o'clock we go to Paro, we choke him. Let the Jews go. We're tired already. We got blood, we got frogs, we got the animals are dying. No more. Now they let them go. You don't let them go, we blow out your place. What would he do? All the soldiers will see. They throw their swords away. That's it. We surrender. We don't want to cooperate with you. You won't have a choice. 
So two reasons. One is that they didn't force him to release the nation of Israel. Second, that they took advantage on them after, after business hours. When they finished to work for Paro, they took him to work in their homes. That's what happened. So they used to go and clean their homes and take care of their homes. And there is a third reason. In the beginning, Paro didn't want to make them slave. Say, no, it's not polite, it's not, it's not, you know. And they say, no, no, they, they multiply, soon they're going to take over that country. Immigration, the Jews came 70 people, look what's going on. As long as the Jews live in Eretz Goshen, in a ghetto, they didn't care. When the problem begins, when the Jews didn't listen to Hashem, Hashem said to them, don't mix with the Goim, don't move to Fifth Avenue. Don't move to Long Island, to Miami, to, don't move to all these places. Stay together. When you're together, you're not a burden for them so much. Yeah, they're like in jail, in the ghetto. That's how it was in Europe. They always lived in ghettos. Ah, you live in my building. You lived in Fifth Avenue. You lived in the plaza. You live in downtown. You live here. You live there. Everywhere I go, I see you in my businesses, in the traffic, next to me. Oh, it's too much already. That's what happened now in, the, in Europe. They go crazy. Well, there was a little bit Arabs. No. Now it's all over. The airport is packed. They're now going crazy. So they're starting to make laws against Islam. They cannot cover their head. All kinds of things to make the Arab leaves. Or there's another problem. What's another problem? In Germany, it's full of Turkish people. The Germans go crazy. Don't be surprised if in 20, 30 years from now there'll be another Holocaust or a big war between Germany and Turkey. Why? They don't like them. They don't like the religion. They don't like their color. They don't like their accent. They don't like anything about them. And they take away their jobs. Now, if for, for whatever Let's describe a scenario that the Turks will build themselves a one huge city and they'll only be there. The Germans wouldn't care so much. You know, people only care when you intimidate them. They bring your culture into their face. And that's where the problem begins. When the Jews went to all over Israel, the Torah says, They filled up the entire Egypt with their presence. Ah, then they started to worry. So soon they're going to make a revolution here. Europe. In 10 years from now, will be all Muslims. That's it. There's no more Europe. Literally, there's no more Europe. 50 million Muslims in Europe. That's it. 5 million, 6 million, 3 million, 2 million. One. Add together in all the countries, in all Europe, Russia, this, you know, as many countries. That's it. And they multiply three times faster or four times faster than the Europeans. So the, the Europeans, now it's a, now it's a, now it's a key moment. Either they will go with the laws of democracy and let the Muslims take over and then Muslims become the Middle East, another second Middle East, or they're going to go against the law of democracy because it's a matter of life and death. They say, put their democracy in the garbage, let's start changing the laws. You are not allowed. You are now canceling the visa, canceling everyone they catch on the street, throwing all the illegal immigrants. They try to do it here in Arizona, you know. You see what happened. So far, the democracy is winning. They made them change their mind. Ten years from now, it'll happen again. There's a point that the people of the place cannot stand the visitors anymore. It's natural. It's, that's the way the world was always. It's not, it didn't start in our time. So, Shaul HaMelech didn't kill him. Because of that, we had Haman. 
Because of that we had Haman, because of that we had Hitler. Tens of millions of Jews died. If only Shaul will kill him, as Hashem said, destroy all of them, do not even leave one. Only one he left. And it cost us millions of Jewish bodies. The Greeks, the Babylonians, the Romans, they all come from who? Esav, who was Esav? Edom. Germania, I just read to you, Germania of Edom. Haman, Haman Agagi. Agag, Amalek. Amalek, Germania. All connect, it's all the same one person. And history shows when you don't listen to Hashem. Now, what Shaul did? Shaul was a very big tzaddik until now. In history, is memorized as one of the best kings we ever had. Even though that critical mistake that cost him to lose his kingdom, you see, in Judaism, many people called Saul Shaul. It's a positive name. The best king in history was Chizkiyahu. Then David Amelech. Then the rest, Shlomo Amelech. The last things in the life of Shlomo Amelech, even though he was very important holy king, the last years of his life, the, the Torah says, if the Torah didn't say, I wouldn't dare to say it. But it's in the Torah, in the Tanakh. Vayasara Hashem. He, did, he made sins. And the women that he married turned his heart away from Hashem in the last years of his life. And the Torah is very objective because it's a divine book. You never find any bad word against Jason Christianity or anything against Muhammad in Islam or anything about Buddha in Buddhism. Never. Because people wrote it. They made it up, so they made it pretty. But over here, it's objective. Whenever David HaMelech made a mistake, it's in the, Torah, in the Tanakh, in the Bible. Shlomo HaMelech made one or two or five mistakes, whatever it was, oh, it's inside the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu made a mistake, it's in the Torah. Aaron was involved somehow with the golden calf, it's in the Torah. Hashem got upset at somebody. In Everything is in the Torah. Why? It's a divine book. Hashem is not a liar. He's not a newspaper reporter that writes what he wants to write. He has an agenda. You know? Different story. One little mistake. And why Shaul? Shaul had mercy on him. Ah, there's nothing to destroy. Plus, he didn't kill the sheep. And he told him, what is this noise of the sheep that I hear? He said, ah, I'm going to sacrifice it to your God. What do you worry? Hashem told me to kill all of them. I'm smarter than Hashem. Why to throw $20 million to the garbage? Thousands of sheep, cows. Take everything, we'll use them for sacrifice. If we kill them, we might as well make a mitzvah with that. No, why to exterminate them if we can use it for mitzvah? Now, we're not going to eat it. Sacrifices to Hashem. No? Good idea, no? You cannot mix your personal opinions and understanding and feelings when you got a direct order from God. Whether the, the order is in the Torah, whether the order came through a prophet, or whether God spoke to you directly. It doesn't matter how you receive the order. It's all divine orders. There is no room for interference. You just do it black on white. You don't move one inch. One inch. Hashem told you to make tefillin. There's a thousand steps. You say, one of them I'll do better. Why should I do it like this? Let me do it like this. It's prettier. It's not kosher. You, you messed it up. Yeah, people wrote names of angels on a mezuzot. You ruined the mezuzah. Why? I wrote Shema Israel, Vayayim Shamoah, and then I wrote, I started to add all kinds of nice things around it. I want to make it better. Pasul. Not good. Why? 
You don't move an inch from what I told you. It's a divine instruction. With divine instruction, you don't mix. So, we finished. 